I'm going to, um, this probably isn't going to be up on the wall, because uh, I'll pick up at the beginning of chapter 12, but if you have your Bibles in your laps, I'm going to start in chapter 11, verse 30, and we're going to read through the end of the, uh, end of the letter. It says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity, literally my incapacity, my sickness, my weakness is what this word means. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Aretius, the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall and escaped from his hands. Again, this being the beginning of his relationship with the Lord, this is a, a declaration of this position of weakness. Chapter 12, it is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, whether out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmity. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn, not just like a rose thorn, but a tent stake, a stake in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to abuse me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness therefore most gladly i would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of christ may rest upon me literally settle down take up residence in me the power of christ therefore i take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for christ's sake for when i am weak then I am strong. I become a fool in boasting. Remember last week he talked about, let me, be, let me be a little insane for a minute. He's saying, I become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it in which you were inferior to other churches, except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. And again, hear the, hear the tongue-in-cheek here um, as he is stirring up the reality of their rejection of him. Verse 14, now for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours but you. 
For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Did you hear that, Dad? (laughs) Side note, I remember being in high school. My dad had a book at home. It said, How to Die Broke. I think I tried to burn that book. Anyways, verse 15. And I will very gladly spend, listen to this, listen to his heart. I will very gladly spend and be spent, be exhausted for your souls, for your life. Hear his heart. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. But be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. Again, that's a tongue-in-cheek comment. This is what he's being accused of. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak, or sorry, yeah, the word is not excuse, but it's defend. It's this idea of apologetics. Do you think that we defend ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. For I fear lest when I shall come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you. And I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, lewdness which they have practiced. And all these words that he's just listed out, these are all the, the division that is going on between he and they. Chapter 13. This will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I have told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we are also weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves. As to whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do no evil. Not that we should appear approved or genuine, but that you should do what is honorable. That we may, uh, though we may seem disqualified, you know, in their in their eyes. You, regardless of what you think about somebody else, you do what is honorable. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. And this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present, I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification 
and not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell. And literally, it's rejoice. Become complete. Become restored. Become put in order. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You know, what, an, what an end to this letter as he is, again, there's tensions, contentions, jealousies, divisions, strife. We don't quite have a grasp on the details and the nuances of, of the separation in the relationship, but you hear Paul pouring out his heart, um, defending himself, which again, he uses a lot of cultural language in the sense of, uh, you know, I don't want to boast, I don't want to give you my resume, but I need to remind you of who I am in Jesus, who I've been among you, who those who I have sent to you, how they have reacted to you, how they have interacted with you. We've, we've not sought you, we've sought to love you, we've brought the gospel to you, we want you to be reconciled with God, uh, we want you to flourish, we want you ultimately to fulfill your potential. And that's what I titled this morning's sermon is Potential. It comes from the word edification. To to edify someone is to build them up. And ultimately, the heart behind the word is that as Christ is moving in your life and he is allowing you to interact with whether they're your brothers and sisters or whether they're strangers, that the authority that he's given to you, the gifts that he's given to you, the context of your life that he has given to you is not just for your relationship with him, but as you engage in other people's lives, you are seeking to help them fulfill their full potential. Their full potential in Jesus, not in themselves, is, is the idea. Now again, you sit, sit in your own life, in your own context, and just sit in this word, Potential. You and I have a great potential to sin. We have potential to shake our fists at God and rebel against him. We have the potential to damage relationships, whether it's with friends or spouses or with children. We have the potential to live our lives only for ourselves. And that, is, that leads to destruction in humanity. And again, it's really easy to curse the darkness and to point out all the things that are wrong. But this idea of being edified in Christ, being built up in him. In Ephesians 4, the, the goal, the aim of all of our lives is that equipping process continues until we are all in perfect likeness and perfect completeness and maturity in who Jesus Christ is, which for all of us, that doesn't happen until we stand in his presence. But think of what a motivator that ought to be. What potential has he handed to you? What potential has he given to you in your life? Whether it's your sufferings and your trials, whether it's your gifts, your talents, your time, whatever, whatever your context looks like in Jesus, you have the potential to bring him glory with your life. You have the potential not to destroy other human beings, but you have the potential to build them, to help them fulfill their own potential in Christ. So as you sit in Paul's boasting that he's given, he's, he's using this language of he wants to kind of separate himself from it because it's, it's not... 
you don't want to teach your own horn then. You don't want to teach your own horn now. But he's talking about himself in regards to this revelation. And he uses this language. that he, I know this man, and he's, again, he's referring to himself. That 14 years prior to him writing this, this would have been at the time that Agabus was given the prophecy in regards to the famine coming. And remember just the context that Paul is sitting in. He's coming back to Corinth not only to be reconciled in his relationship with them, but there's a gift that's being gathered to go help the poor in Jerusalem. So all of this is connection. And Paul is saying 14 years ago, the same time that God gave us this revelation that there was going to be this famine, God snatched me. And whether I was in the body, I don't know. Whether this was just in my mind and it felt real to me is what Paul is saying. He snatched me into the third heaven. And third heaven is just, it's a, it's a term that the Jews used in regards to the, the place where God dwells. And again, you sit in Jewish writings. I mean, there's some of them, there's as many as 365 heavens. So there's all kinds of weird tradition. But Paul's using this language that the Corinthians would recognize. God caught me up. Whether in my body, I don't know. Whether in the spirit, I don't know. He took me to his throne room. He took me to this place that's called paradise. Which paradise being defined as it's, it's the restored Eden. But it's not a physical place, it's a spiritual place. So when you, when you run across paradise, when people die, where do their bodies go? We, we bury bodies in the ground. We, we cremate the bodies. And there is a separation between body and spirit. So when Paul's talking about this third heaven, when he's talking about paradise, he's talking, and I don't know what spirit is. God is spirit. And he has created us in his image. And where he abides, where he is abode for all eternity, this is the place where Paul was taken. This spiritual realm and this spiritual place. And he's conveying to them what I heard there, what I saw there. I don't have the authority to even tell you the inexpressible glory. But he's using this to set up this whole thorn idea. Now, when you sit in this thorn in the flesh, uh, it's in Numbers, if you're taking notes, Numbers 33, 55. It's used in Judges 2, 3, Joshua 23, 13. Uh, the same phrase, thorn in your flesh, is used in regards to the enemies of the Jews, the Canaanites in the culture, in the land. God says that this culture, their idolatry, as you come into the land, they are going to be a thorn in your flesh. So when he said an identity, what is Paul talking about when he says that God, listen, listen to this. This is, this is extremely uncomfortable. God, the almighty God, gave Paul pain. He identifies this thorn in his flesh as a messenger, an angel of Satan that abused him. Now, there's different ideas that you consider. Was this physical? So we know from Paul's writings that he had an issue with his eyes. So is he talking about a physical infirmity as the thorn in his flesh that God gave to him? Is he talking about something mental where the enemy of Satan, the messenger, is there just chattering at him all the time? Remember Paul's history. Paul caused believers in Jesus Christ to deny Jesus. We believe in that context that Paul, not, well, not just believe, but you can sit in the book of Acts where Stephen was stoned. There was Paul 
in full agreement with Stephen's head receiving stones to the death? Do you think that there was chatter from the enemy in regards to who Paul was before Jesus? I guarantee it. How much of this is on the spiritual plane where we we locked into Ephesians 6 last week talking about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. There's a real spiritual conflict. There's a real spiritual battle. In chapter 10, he was referring to, you know, we need to take thoughts captive, this war that we have in our minds. You know, different ideas, probably a mixture. We don't know exactly what his thorn, what his stake in his side was. But for me, you know, I sit in... How I'm going to relate to you is uh, my own life experience of just watching my wife. So I met Julie 22 years ago. Um, You know, she's 19 years old. Uh, She's a type 1 diabetic from the age of 12. Type 1 diabetes, uh, her body does not produce insulin, which literally means if she doesn't take her insulin today, if, if her supply of insulin went away, she would be dead within a couple of days. It's that kind of thorn in her flesh. Or even before she met me, you know, she and her family are believers. They pursued God for her to be healed of this. When I met her, um, you know, this is something that I had to learn and had to observe in her. I've been married to her for 21 years. And I've watched her these two decades process through this thorn, this very real physical thorn in her flesh every single day. You guys don't see it because you get, you get the outside Julie. Those of you who know her and you can, you, know, you can determine what's going on in her mood or you can see the look in her eyes, this is something that she has to think about all the time, every day. Every piece of food that goes across her lips into her mouth, she has to think about how that's going to affect her blood sugars. If she's just been going throughout the day and she's on a project or whatever and she's starting to feel kind of funky a little bit, she has to think about, well, what is my blood sugar? So again, I'm I'm bringing this up to say this is something that she has, that God is almighty sovereign, gave to her. And she's had to process through her life in, God, will you take this away? Like Paul, asking, God, will you take this away from me? And to sit in God's response of my, and again, you can, you can sit there and pick apart this sentence by its words. Who's the source? Jesus. What is he talking about? He's talking about his grace. And again, we define this as this unmerited favor, receiving something that we don't deserve. But again, as I just sit in this, as I, as I observe my wife, and I have to apply this to my own life, I watch her depend upon the grace of Jesus every single day to be her strength into something that she is weak and sick and infirm in and incapable of even surviving apart from the modern, you know, um, discovery of insulin. Without the modern discovery of insulin, she would have been dead at age 12. Now, this is, again, this is, this is her context, and I have to sit there and apply this in my own life. As I sit in this statement of here is God who is sovereign and is in control, he is allow, not just allowing this to occur in Paul's life, but this is something that he has given to Paul intentionally. And Paul says it is for the purpose of keeping me humble. 
It's for the purpose of keeping me dependent upon God. It's for the purpose of me to pay attention to God in every moment throughout the day because I'm weak. Again, you have to sit in your own context. What are, the, what are the decisions that you have to sit in every single day? What are the, all those moments, what are the positions that he puts you in where you feel absolutely incapable? What are those positions that he puts you in where you, you say, God, you can stand to the sidelines. I am on the field. I got this. Where are those things that you feel strong? So again, this whole statement coming from Jesus, like my grace is sufficient for you. You sit in the opposite of that. Of in my self, I am completely insufficient. I have no sufficiency to, to know, to move, to be a husband, to be a dad, to serve you. As I stare at myself in the mirror, as I let the Lord reveal my heart within me, I am utterly dependent upon his grace. And this is a really deep word as we sit in just the idea of what his grace is. His grace, is, it's, it's him. He gives us himself. You're in your frustration. Don't be self-sufficient, trying to solve your own problems, trying to solve your own mind, trying to solve your own heart, trying to solve that person that you're interacting with, that you're, you know, you're pleading for God to, to do something, and you feel like you've got to do something in your own strength, in your own power. This sentence conveys to each one of us, we are truly, utterly dependent upon who Jesus Christ is as our God. And the grace that he gives to us, even though he gives us hardships, he gives us trials, you may know exactly what the messenger of Satan that abuses you is in your own context. Even though he, he lets these things come into our lives, what, for what purpose, Lord? So that his will would be performed. So that his glory would be revealed. So that he will make you to be the man and the woman that he has created you to be in that fullness of that potential, if that makes sense. It's not, a, it's not your self-sufficiency and your strength that allows your full potential to come out. It's your submission to his grace and recognizing that you really are weak in everything. And even when you think that you're strong in something... Just hold on for five minutes. Somebody's going to come alongside of you that's a lot stronger in that particular area than you are that's going to make you feel weak. And the incredible statements that he is portraying to the Corinthians because they're sitting in this idea of they want the cool leaders. They want the rich leaders. They want the influential leaders. And they're looking at Paul and they're just griping about his life, about all the trials and struggles that he has. And Paul is telling them every single one of those infirmities, every single one of those areas of weakness, every single one of those trials and tribulations that has come into my life, I had no strength to overcome any of it. But Jesus' grace has been sufficient, and therefore his strength has become complete, is becoming complete, is maturing, is doing exactly 
what he is sending his strength forth in my life. He is allowing me to reach my potential in him. And again, it's not this self-sourced potential, so we can't get in like the self-help worldly definition of that. God has created you for a reason. And ultimately, that reason is that you have a relationship with him, that you are one with him, and that you reflect him. But we all sit in the circumstances of our lives that have the potential to dull that, right? So here again, this is, this is one of those moments where you preach the gospel to yourself every day in every circumstance. When you're struggling, when you feel weak, when you don't know the way out, you realize, you know what, Jesus? You really are sufficient. I really am weak. May your power settle and take up residence within me. Jesus, help me to take pleasure not to be weird, but to understand the infirmities, the reproaches, the needs, the persecution, the distresses that are in my life, they are for your name's sake. I am weak. Confess it. But in you, Jesus, all things are possible. I am strong in you. And again, in all of this, he's... You've, you're, you're the ones that have made me. You forced me to, to boast in such fashion. Declaring that these signs of, of an apostle were, were fulfilled in this community. In 1 Corinthians, you know, this is, I pray this for you. I pray this for our congregation. I pray this for everybody who is pressing into who Jesus is. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. May that be an outstanding prayer, repetitious prayer for all of us, that our faith would not be in man, but that our faith would be in the power of God. In this section here in uh, verse 14, this is where... You know, I need to keep myself always checked in this. The, can you, uh, you know, I do not seek yours, but you. I don't seek what you have. I don't seek your influence. I don't seek your money. I don't seek using you as a tool. I am seeking you. Why? Because I love you. But the more abundantly that I am loving you, the more abundantly that I am pouring out myself and spending myself on your behalf, there's this lack of reciprocal relationship where he says, the less that I am loved. And what happens to you in that? So when you go out of your way to love somebody, you go out of your way to love your spouse, and they don't recognize it, what do you do? Why I ought to. It's, it's, it is offensive to demonstrate love for somebody and not to have them acknowledge that. It's offensive to pour yourself out on behalf of another human being or on, for a group of people 
and not to have that, that reciprocal gratitude, relationship. And again, none of this is to toot your own horn. Paul's not doing that. He's just demonstrating just this fact. As a father, I love you. I cherish you. I am spending my life for your success, for you to be edified, for you to achieve your potential in Jesus Christ. But the more I exert and the more that I demonstrate that love, the less that I'm loved by you. I don't know about you, but in my flesh, if I were Paul, how many, how many other locations did Paul have to minister? You know, the Lord's sending them all over the place. But he gave this declaration at the, towards the end of chapter um, 11. He's talking about all the different uh, external physical trials that he's going through. He says, besides these other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for all the churches, my anxiety for the churches. Every single place where Paul went to share the gospel he didn't just leave and, okay, next place. He always had prayer attachment, a spiritual attachment. Um, he wanted to go back and visit. And you sit in the book of Acts, and what did Paul want to do when he went back to these places? He wanted them to be strengthened. Again, this whole idea, he wanted them to be built up and to be edified. Yet they're not returning that, um, that love. They're not returning that relationship. So in all of this, the emphasis of this letter is he's warning them, I'm coming, and I'm seeking for our relationship to be reconciled and restored before I come so that when I come, it's not going to be harsh and sharp. But he uses all this, you know, he's talking about when he comes, he doesn't want there to be dissensions and jealousies you know, the discord in the group, disunity. He doesn't want there to be fury and wrath as they're sitting there, you know, whether it's in gossip, whether it's in I'm right and you're wrong, those kinds of conversations. But there's this, it's weird at the end of chapter 12 where he uses this, he's talking about that they need to repent from their filthiness, from their uncleanness, from their sexual immorality, from their lewdness. And it's one of those, so is this still a prevalent behavior that's going on in the church? Is, you know, is there a contingent that's aiming for all the lust of the flesh to be fulfilled along with relationship in Jesus? I don't know. It's kind of, it's weird. It's because this is the first time that he brings up this subject matter all the way here at the end. Or is he really just speaking about these conditions of the heart? There is in this church here in Corinth, and God protect us from in this church here in Alpharetta from having this kind of filth on the inside. Again, you know, sexual immorality, whether it's physical actions that are transpiring or as Jesus teaches, you know, lust, it, it, everything begins in the heart. And earlier on, he spent a lot of time talking about his heart and their heart to have open heart and relationship with one another. But ultimately, as he's concluding this letter, his, his final exhortation is for them to what? Examine yourself. Don't you know you? Do you really know you? This is, this is a, I had an email this week just asking us about communion, so... I put the lid on it this morning. We're going to take communion together. Um, but just to give a little bit of heart behind why we have open communion. 
For me, in my context, just in following Jesus, it's been a lot more informal congregation than formal congregation. But for me in Salt Lake, when we plugged into the Calvary Chapel that was there, the pastor set up a communion early in the morning, so 6 o'clock in the morning. I only lived a couple miles from the church. I was able to go there, participate in communion, so I'm worshiping God on my own. I have my Bible open on my own. I'm praying, I'm repenting, I just, just really deep devotional fellowship between me and God. Pastor didn't show up for a few weeks, so I was harassing him. And again, this is, this is within a few months of us joining this congregation. I had the keys to the church to come in and set this up. This was my behavior for about five years in this church. I love spending this private, quiet time with the Lord. Now, communion as a whole, this is something that we are told to do together as a family, to participate as a family. In 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul is giving instructions in regards to the order of communion, he's talking about a love feast, where the congregation is gathering together in different homes at different places. It's going to be all different sizes. They're sitting down and they're sharing like a Passover meal together. Becoming one with one another, fellowshipping with one another, communing with another, participating, sharing. This is, this is the heart behind these words. At the very end of the very last thing, he's talking about having the communion, this fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But this is why I give us the space to come in and freely participate in communion by yourself in a relationship between you and God in response to him every single weekend. You don't need to go through another man. You don't have to come through a pastor. This is for you to stand up in your faith in Jesus Christ. You come, you take Jesus to yourself. You remember that your God became just like you. He was a man. He was a child who grew. He was tempted in every way. And the body that he took upon himself it was for the whole purpose of offering it on your behalf. Letting his body be broken and, and dying in his weakness on the cross, giving himself so that you could be free from sin. Using that word remission, like cancer being fully removed out of your body. We sit and we look at the wine as the grape juice, the fruit of the vine. It's to, be, it's to be a symbol of his new covenant, his new promise. And what is the new covenant? In the Old Testament, here's the law. Here's what you need to follow. It's always been righteousness through faith in God. But in this new covenant, we have this promise that through his death and through his resurrection, through faith in Jesus Christ, he has given to me and to you a new heart sealed in his blood. I mean, think of, the, think of the imagery of it, washed in his blood. That's a gross image. But here we have the manna from heaven, the bread of heaven, who is Jesus Christ. And his blood is what cleanses us. And again, there's a line through the entire word of God in regards to life being in the blood and our sins requiring a perfect sacrifice for us to become to be a new creation in his image. So as we gather together week after week, it's not just so that we can do a cultural worship thing. 
We worship so that you can step into the throne room of God and to thank him and to praise him and to remember him and to honor him. We don't open up the word, and I don't stand up here and teach so that you can give me a pat on the back and say, well, that was wonderful, and your thesis and your points A, B, and C, and your conclusion, good job, pastor. That's not what I'm aimed at. We are aimed at opening up his word so that we can each hear the voice of God. And here's what he's doing in my life. Here's what he's speaking to me. And we're all sharing this and participating in it together. But what he has spoken to me out of these last couple of chapters this week is going to be different than what he's spoken to you. So this is why we pause and we have a couple of songs at the end. Every single week. How does God want you to respond? Some of you, you need to examine yourselves. Some of you, you need to ask God to say, God... Search me. Know me. See if there is filth in me. See if there's uncleanness in here, God. And do your work and remove that filth from me through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Some of you need to be reconciled to God. Some of you are out of step with God. You are doing your own thing. You love the Lord. You love Jesus. But you are not in right relationship with him. That's the, that's the exhortation that Paul has given in this letter to the Corinthian church. And this is the exhortation that we sit in week after week is remember his sacrifice. Lord, examine me. Some of you, you're sailing with the Lord. You're in right step with him every single day. So this is never a thing to, you need to go digging into your heart and digging into your past and, and figuring out why you're all messed up and those kinds of things. No, this is, a, this is a moment where, Jesus, you examine me. Your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient to cleanse me. Your grace is sufficient to sustain me. Your grace is sufficient to re-image me as a new creation in you for all eternity. So worship team, come on up. This is what we're going to do. So we still have the COVID little, uh, the packets. So for those of you who are gluten-free, this little glass dish, those are gluten-free wafers. The rest of us, we get to, uh, have this lovely styrofoam that's supposed to be bread in some fashion. But it's not, again, it's not the elements. There is no magic. There is no, this isn't, um, this isn't man stuff. Again, you sit in the culture, it was a feast where you're sitting down together, breaking bread together, becoming one with one another. This is what this looks like in our culture, in our context right now. But come up, grab communion. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the table is open to you. If you haven't demonstrated faith in Jesus where he is my Lord, he is my Savior, may this be the day. Again, this isn't, this isn't Christian tradition. This is what Jesus commanded us to do. As often as we gather together, we're here to remember him. So you come up, you grab the element, you take it to yourself. You spend time with the Lord in prayer for a few minutes. Let him examine you. Let him expose his grace to you, his sufficiency, his power, and hold on to that. And let us take uh, communion together as a, as a family this morning. Rather than independently, uh, we'll all partake together. So let's worship.